Hi everyone, welcome to Mech and Matter. I'm your host, Clarice Chan, and today I'll be interviewing Professor Dresselhal Marai, a material science professor at Stanford University. Hi, Professor, thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. So I learned about you recently in an article about your new Metalheads course. I wanted to get to know about your background a little bit first. So how did you get into material science? Well, that has been a long and winding path that maybe was not exactly what I expected. Um, so I began uh, my career actually with an undergrad in, um, in chemistry, <laughs> um, where I was studying uh, lanthanide chemistry and how uh, we can explore different versions of separations in a really hard to separate type of an ore and waste streams and things like that. And I was really interested in that perspective and in uh, how things work. But the thing that's really fun about lanthanides is that the F orbitals are such that um, they're actually inside of the valence shell, meaning that when F elements bond with their neighbors, so lanthanides and actinides, their bonding orbitals are not the ones that have most of the unpaired electrons that determine the color of the material, meaning that you end up with these really, really strong colors that are very pronounced that are incredibly narrow in the frequency range that defines them. So what does that mean? Well, that means that they're really bright and flashy <laughs> and that they always are doing something interesting that manifests as a change in the color. So I was very interested in this and I was very interested, you know, became very interested as I went through undergrad in understanding what color really meant in terms of light. And this brought me to my PhD where I uh, studied how shock waves then drive chemistry um, that we can probe with optics, with uh, visible light, uh, to be able to interrogate at the very fastest timescales at uh, millions of billions, bil sorry, millions of billions of seconds. So that's 10 to the minus 15. <laughs> um, uh, how material damage at the very fastest time scale they actually can, supersonically. And um, this brought me down the rabbit hole of understanding that actually the chemistry of those types of materials originates from the defects that start in them. And so that got me really interested in how defects work. And then I went down the rabbit hole of understanding how defects work by in my postdoc, um, which was in pure physics, uh, looking at um, how we could design ways of basically building a microscope with x-rays that could zoom in deep inside of metal materials that are absolutely macroscopic on millimeter scales to see only the defects and not the normal material, to watch how defects zoom around and interact with each other from millisecond to femtosecond time scale. So that's 10 to the minus three, all the way down to 10 to the minus 15, millionth of a billionth of a second. And so this has now brought me down the rabbit hole to then understand how the fundamental science of those defects manifest in macroscopic properties like we see in the materials all around us. Like for example, when you open a can of Coke, the reason that works <laughs> is because those metals are really ductile, meaning that uh, when you apply pressure or force, they uh, change their shape very easily. And because of that, then we can tune and engineer the metals that we work with 
to be able to uh, basically engineer the defects into the structures we need. And so this has now brought me full circle and uh, into the world of material science and engineering, which you probably thought <laughs> I uh, got into quite a lot longer ago, but actually I'm now one year into the, the journey of material science and engineering and very much enjoying it. That's so cool. So it sounds like a lot of rabbit holes led to one thing to another, right? Um, yeah. How did you know you were interested in chemistry in high school? And as a student, like, how do you pursue this passion? So all of it started with cooking and chocolates for me. <laughs> so I have always really loved cooking. And the thing that I really enjoy cooking, I'm not good at following the rules. <laughs> so the thing that I always really liked about cooking is seeing what all the recipes told me to do and then going off and doing my own thing with you know motivation from the recipes and i liked to think of it as you know the the ingredients i'm using are my starting materials and by putting them together under different environments then i can you know engineer the taste that i'm looking for and of course that's maybe a a, a very technical perspective on cooking <laughs> um that i've developed over the years but the thing that really focused it for me on chemistry was when I started getting really interested in how candy is made. So candy making and chocolatiering are both pieces of cooking that are incredibly technical. In fact, actually, when you make chocolates and you buy the industrial grade chocolate that's 20 kilogram blocks, it comes with a phase diagram on the back because every single batch of chocolate has different temperatures that are relevant to the porosity and the different phase transitions that determine when it's liquid, when it's solid, things like that, and when it will harden with the right properties to not make the fat separate. So you might have seen um, when you leave chocolate in the sun and it melts and then it recrystallizes, that it has this white sheen on it. Mm -hmm. That's called bloom. And the reason that that happens is because the chocolate crystallizes in a way that actually the fats separate out. And what that means is actually that when you melt and recrystallize your chocolate bar, we're not navigating the phase diagram quite correctly. Basically, we're not applying the right temperature path or profile as a function of time to be able to make the chocolate do what we wanted it to, right? Mm -hmm. This is how we always think about materials and material science and in chemistry in general, I would say. Uh, but it's something that you don't typically see in high school unless you go down the rabbit hole of chocolate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, another example that I got interested in but maybe was never quite as good at um, <laughs> was uh, candy making, so hard candies. Um, if you look up how to make caramel, um, caramel is an interesting beast because if you put sugar on a pan, if you heat it up and then you just cool it down and, sh and let it flow, you'll end up with this rock hard candy. But if you don't heat it quite enough for that, then actually it's soft taffy. And so this is called the soft tack and hard tack limits that describe the phase that it will form once it recrystallizes from that. So I got deep in the land of candy making and chocolate making, and that was kind of the thing that inspired me to think a little bit deeper about you know what is sugar anyway? <laughs> what are these chocolate molecules? What are they up to? What's this white stuff that keeps appearing? To think about how that all packs together in my real life and then see how I could manifest that. Um, so, so that was what did it for me. <laughs> so now 
as a professor and I guess having experience in a lab, have you ever tried to recreate that candy chocolate experience <laughs> or have you like visited a chocolatier or something? So um, I, I have, I will say that I maybe don't find it as exciting because I like phase transitions that happen, not gradual phase transitions that kind of start and nucleate. Um, because the thing that really interests me is really the measurements of it. <laughs> um, so understanding, I, I would say the one that the one that still itches me is is the the caramel. I haven't quite cracked that one. Oh no, pun not intended. <laughs> um, but the chocolate one, I, I would say I I do actually still find that very interesting. And the thing that still still kicks me is that there's you know <laughs> there's a phase diagram on the back of every single bar of chocolate if you buy it industrially. <laughs> It's very cool. Something I'm interested in too. So, awesome. Well, I strongly recommend you try it. Try your hand at chocolatiering. <laughs> yeah. So there are three main routes for STEM students, I'd say. So there's industry, there's strict research, and then there's academia, right? So how did you know um, that you wanted to become a professor eventually? And can you talk a little bit about your experiences which, with each of them? Yeah, so I would say my path has been a little bit wandering in this regard as well. So I started off grad school knowing that the one thing I never wanted to do was be a professor. <laughs> because damn it, I just wanted to go into industry and focus on a product, something like that. And one of the things I really liked about grad school is that it gives you time to wander. <laughs> so while I was in graduate school, I explored what it would look like to get a job in industry from the perspective of, of a, a PhD in chemistry, a lot of the time that looks like a, a job in pharmaceuticals, but I wasn't really in that that part of the field, so that wasn't so interesting to me. Um, I explored a little bit of what it looked like to consult for a startup company to see kind of what exactly it would look like to do this, maybe not at a late stage company, but an earlier stage company so that I had a bigger role in what, what the company was doing, how it was developing. And I liked that, but um, at the end of the day, I felt that, that the students were really the thing that I thought was the most interesting. The way, the way my mom always tells me is, you know, you gotta think about what the product is. In any job, there's always a product. But the question is, um, you know, do you want your product to be students or do you want your product to be, uh, you know, a thing that you're building or do you want your product to be, um, you know, a scientific direction or, or, you know, people getting beam time or things like that. Um, and, and that was kind of what led me down the rabbit hole of realizing that actually the thing I really liked was helping my colleagues, helping my peers and um, helping people to really find their passion in life. Um, and to, to do that kind of enabled by science. I will add that there are many more directions actually than, than just three in scientific careers. Um, there are also opportunities to get involved in policy and in government um, through the lens of scientific policy. Um, I have some colleagues who have gone off and done that. And you know, in, in this nation, we do actually need people who learn both about you know, really deep, the, deeply the fundamental science and then go into government and policy to be able to make sure that, you know, when Congress is making decisions about climate change and things like that, they're doing that with a deep understanding of what the implications of their of their decisions really are, right? Yeah. <laughs> My brother's interested in that kind of stuff too. So awesome. There are actually some wonderful fellowships that are coming out of DC that are uh, towards that. 
So I guess what's the best and worst thing about being a professor? Best and worst thing. <sighs> I would say the best thing I keep learning. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, very new to being a, a professor and uh, I so I'm I'm just one year in now. And uh, I, I love every second of it. I love that my students always teach me new things, that I get a chance to um, dive in so many more directions than I ever thought I would. I mean, I remember when I was an undergraduate thinking to myself, you know, programming's pretty cool. I, I kind of like this computer science thing, but uh, I'm not sure I could really do this. I'm not sure I'm the right person. And at this point, everyone in my group actually has at least one class, usually two or three, on uh, computer science, computer vision. And we use it in everything that we do to the extent that, like, I, I no longer am at a point in my career that I go into the lab and, and do experiments, but I definitely still debug code with my students. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, so I, I really love all the different directions that, that my career takes me in and all the different types of of uh, cool new science things I get to see, but I also really love getting to watch, and this is probably the biggest thing, I really love getting a chance to watch my students and, and see what where science lets them go <laughs> and watch them kind of find their voice and find their passion in science. Um, that, that, just, that just gets me every time. <laughs> um, but you asked for the, the negatives as well. Uh, I would say, Probably the biggest negative is when I have to stay up super, super late working on a whole bunch of proposals that we're all due at the same time. But I'm okay with that for the for the good side. Worth it, yeah. Do you see yourself continuing to be a professor for a long time? That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess since we kind of know a little bit about how you got here, um, I did a little bit of research on your research. Um, <laughs> if we can talk a little bit about that. So can you talk about your research with dark field X microscopy and what is it and how did you use it? <laughs> sure, yeah. So this was the technique that I developed um, throughout my postdoc. Uh, well, the time resolved version is the technique that I developed throughout my postdoc. Um, and have now been been bringing to a whole range of other types of systems. So um, basically, there's this long-standing problem in material science that um, we know that dislocations, which are line defects that slice through different types of crystalline materials, that those can move around and pattern with each other and can pattern into these hierarchical three-dimensional structures that describe how the defects in a material basically uh, dictate mechanical properties, actually many more than mechanical properties, also thermal and electronic. Um, but, but we don't have tools really to look deep beneath the surface of macroscopic materials like you know the houses that we have around us um, to be able to actually understand how the deep subsurface defects that comprise most of the material dictate the bulk properties, so big full material. Um, that being said, you know, we have over the past hundred years or so made a lot of progress on surface measurements. In fact, some of the world's highest resolution uh, microscopes, the world's highest resolution microscopes, work incredibly well and can see subatomic resolution, you know, single atoms in a structure 
to be able to show us what is at the surface of a material, either through a, a basically microscope tip that scans along it and sees when there are little nudges from atoms that are creating contrast and showing you kind of a map of where the where the electrons are. Um, or electron microscopes, where you just shoot a beam of electrons and see what nudges out of the way uh, to be able to, uh, in transmission mode, see uh, the atomic scale. And the fact that electrons are moving really fast and are really small gives you the ability to see things. They're tiny, tiny, tiny. That's uh, order of magnitude picometers. That's 10 to the minus 12 meters. Um, your hair, right, is 100 micrometers. So that's 10 to the minus 6. So, so that's small. That is well subatomic. <laughs> um, but of course, <laughs> to be able to see these long range interactions of defects, you don't need single atoms. In fact, single atoms is a little bit too much resolution. You need to be able to look over a larger range, a larger area, but you need to be able to look deep underneath that surface because it turns out that the surface distorts the properties of those defects. So x-rays can see through a lot. <laughs> Um, X-rays are not so easy to work with, though, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that we actually don't have good optics to describe them or to, to operate on them or good light sources to be able to generate them. So uh, I currently work at an X-ray laser that is three kilometers long. <laughs> that wow. is, yes. <laughs> so that is kind of the going scale for how, how big an infrastructure you need to truly create an x-ray laser where, you know, to do that in the visible, you could do that in a handheld thing, right? Mm -hmm. So these are not so easy photons to work with, photons being one unit of light, right? Um, but the technology in those types of facilities is really, really advancing right now. And in fact, we're kind of in, in the pioneering days of x-ray science because the first x-ray laser opened its doors to users in 2009. So there are a whole bunch of types of optical techniques that have only ever been possible in the x-ray regime since 2009. <laughs> um, so this is all the precursor to coming from my background in optics and materials. Um, I saw an opportunity uh, to collect images along the x-ray diffracted beam. And, um, you know, it's not just me. A lot of people have been looking into this. Uh, there were a number of different solutions for how to do this microscope with one lens along the diffracted beam. That's an x-ray diffracted beam that is deflected because of the spacing of individual planes to describe a periodic la lattice or, or, you know, crystal. And those, those, those planes, they distort a little bit when you have a defect. And so, of course, to be able to describe the structure of defects, if you look along the diffracted beam, you can see exactly the places that are only spaced poorly, <laughs> not quite what they meant to be spaced at. So the microscope that we built uh, that, that I joined in on was basically taking what they had been developing and implementing that into the world of time-resolved spectroscopy and microscopy so that we could um, watch defects that are moving <laughs> and see how they dance. <laughs> and so we started by turning up the temperature as high as we possibly could 
to watch at the very highest temperature as the material, as the solid is losing its inherent stability as a solid, how do those defects behave? And when do they stop behaving like you would normally expect them to? And so the first work that we did, in addition to, you know, building the setup, building the beamline and, uh, you know, developing the theory to even understand what we're looking at, and some data science tools. Then we uh, were able to actually demonstrate that um, the mechanism by which this originally stable, stabilizing network of dislocations that we could see at the individual dislocation scale, several hundred microns beneath any surface, how those dislocations zooming around actually destabilize the entire structure at 99% of the melting temperature. Wow. Yeah. Did you have specific like materials you were analyzing or researching? So back then I was a, I was a physicist. <laughs> so uh, I was focused mostly on developing the technique and the infrastructure, the architecture to be able to, in the longer term, uh, bring that to different materials applications. Um, so when you build, you know, when you're working at these lasers that are three kilometers long, and you're developing a new technique within that scope, the time scale over which we are describing how our work and, and infrastructure development happens is typically on the order of years, almost decades. <laughs> so, you know, step one is developing the technique and showing that it works and can give really deep and meaningful insight into important problems that people care about. So the fundamental question of how does a material melt We've cared about that for a long time, actually, since before we even knew what science was, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but still to this day, actually, scientists don't agree on how that happens in truly bulk three-dimensional crystals. And so understanding the microscopic origins of melting is a long-standing problem. You know, you could argue millennia old, <laughs> predates humans. Um, but finding the right tool to be able to show that is something we've we've long been been missing, and uh, so that was step one <laughs> uh, to develop the infrastructure to be able to start exploring materials in this way and to get started on um, you know interesting science cases. But step two is then to bring it to science cases that. Um, we expected might need something like this, as opposed to really long-standing problems that, you know, probably won't get solved in my lifetime. <laughs> uh, and so I would say that, you know, now we're starting to explore how to use that and other types of tools uh, to be able to understand the origins of um, of uh, why why metal 3D printing typically doesn't actually give us the uh, mechanical properties we need and does that in ways that are not so predictable and we don't really have the tools to be able to predict how that'll happen. Um, or in other types of systems, like for example, uh, in thermal transport and trying to understand how heat flows through a material and how we can engineer materials to have the heat flow exactly where we need it or where we want it to flow so that, you know, we don't melt the wires. We instead um, have, you know, our chip or computer processor transmit the heat that it generates into the motherboard and, you know, gets out of there quickly. Maybe we don't want it on the motherboard, but 
onto, you know, the circuit board so that it can get out of there quickly um, and not cause trouble that causes the computer to crash. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is the most interesting part of, I guess, your research and also like designing this huge tool? Uh, the research and designing the huge tool. There are so many ways I could answer that question, but I'll, I'll answer it maybe in, in the question that focuses on the word huge. <laughs> um, so as, as you probably are getting from this, uh, the, the work I'm describing here is what we call in the business, big science. So it's science that, you know, you could not do this in your lab. <laughs> this is a huge effort that takes a very large number of people, that takes a very big infrastructure, and that takes um, a lot of, of facilities and people working together to be able to make this happen, both, both domestically and actually internationally. And I have to say, that is one of the things I really love about this type of, of science, is that you're never the only person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> that there's always a large team of people who are really invested in seeing this succeed and who really want to support you and develop it together. Nobody is, you know, vying for, ah, I got there first, I got there first. Mm -hmm. We all just say, look, you know, there's enough, to, enough science to go around. We'll each pick what we want to focus on and we'll move on from there. <laughs> so I guess meeting new people and talking to other scientists is big part. I would say... That, that is probably always an exciting part of science. But the thing that I like about this particular type is the team aspect of it, that you're never the only person working on a project. You're always working in a team and each person has their little sub pieces of it, but you're working together for a larger common vision. Does that make sense? Yeah. Did you have any like unexpected challenges or obstacles that you had to go through? <laughs> unexpected challenges or obstacles. I feel like uh, that that is <laughs> that is so much of facility science. <laughs> so I remember, you know, there was one facility that I worked at that literally lightning struck the accelerator. <laughs> and the whole accelerator started going out of alignment because of that. And, you know, we worked together and we, we found a strategy that would, would make the the experiment work. You know, it didn't it didn't work as it might have worked if there hadn't been lightning striking the accelerator. But, you know, given the accelerator or given the lightning, you know, we actually did pretty well. <laughs> um, there's a lot of unexpected things that can happen like that. Uh, another example would be, um, would be, uh, uh, this wasn't my experiment, but one of my colleagues had an experiment uh, at a synchrotron um, which is the circular version of the laser I just described to you. A little bit lower in energy, but because it's circle, it means it's easier to use as a lot of people at the same time. And um, apparently a pigeon got stuck in there <laughs> and the whole accelerator went down for like two days. <laughs> wow. How did they get the pigeon out? <laughs> you know, the, the story didn't go that far. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about some limitations of using this kind of analysis, if any? Ah, yes. So I would say one obvious limitation is you have to be able to bring your stuff to the accelerator to be able to do the experiment. You have to be able to get beam time, um, which, you know, the whole world is sharing the ability to do experiments on the laser or on the, on the synchrotron. 
there's only so many they can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can be frustrating sometimes, but I think honestly, it keeps us on our toes because it means that we always have to be thinking many steps ahead of where we are today to be able to um, to be able to to in the long term get to where we're looking to go. Now we can jump into the Metalheads course that you're teaching. What was your first inspiration in creating and designing this course? This course was kind of everything that I ever wanted to become a professor to do. Um, I would say inspiration to designing the course was, you know, my path to figuring out that I wanted to do material science and engineering was quite winding and took me about 10 years to figure out. Um, but so, so to some extent, you know, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, these are things that we kind of see in our everyday lives before we get to college. But understanding what is material science and engineering, that's something that, you know, there, there's materials everywhere. It seems like everyone works on that. But, but it is actually a different way of thinking about materials in the world around us. And so I wanted to have a class that kind of showed people, gave people a view of, of what this thing is, material science and engineering, but goes beyond that and also shows, you know, what the careers look like, whether they are the, you know, typical career of, you know, here's the coming in as a professor or the, you know, going into industry, but what other types of careers are out there? And, and why does material science and engineering change what those careers would look like otherwise right why, why material science <laughs> um and so i kind of felt that that was the need and, and that's kind of where the whole concept was born <laughs> so i guess this is what you wanted to have when you were younger yeah i would say i didn't know it but i maybe i maybe should have wanted it <laughs> <laughs> what do you hope students will take away from this course like after they finish and what is your goal as an educator and a mentor for all these students? I guess my goal in this is to give them a better understanding of um, of what the opportunities are in this space and to kind of challenge them to think about things that they might not have thought about before as, uh, you know, what a, what a career in science looks like. Um, you know, things like I was mentioning to you before, right, of, you know, there's science policy. That's something we absolutely need as a society, but it's not something that gets advertised as much when you're in high school as to, you know, this is what a career in science looks like. Um, and, and so I, I felt that that type of, uh, you know, that, that was one of the things I wanted as a take-home goal. The other thing I really wanted was an understanding of kind of the wow, that's cool kind of thing of materials, you know, learning to think a little bit deeper about how material science exists in your everyday life. And actually, that's something we did every Monday in class was that I had at least one person speak up and talk about a material science thing that came up in their lives over the weekend. And, you know, sometimes it was as simple as like, wow, it was raining and it got super slippery, like way slipperier than normal, because, you know, the asphalt absorbs your car oil <laughs> on the first rain of the season it's always more slippery that is a material science reason right it, it's, it's because there's there's dissolved as or dissolved oils in the asphalt that the water brings back up um but you know it's thinking a little bit deeper about where materials exist in your life beyond beyond the textbook so what 
What have you found is the most interesting part to teach? And what do you think students find is the most interesting part to learn? So I know all the students really enjoyed the aerospace one because they got to learn about how to 3D print rockets. <laughs> wow. And uh, the guy who leads the material science division there, Sam Tonislin, at Relativity Space, which is a startup company in Southern California, he came up and actually uh, gave the presentation about that in person. And I, I know that they all really enjoyed that one. Um, but uh, the ones, let's see, what did I find interesting? I have to say, I actually really enjoyed all the mining and extraction work. I, I didn't really know that much about the field when I went into the class, but I figured, you know, for, for a holistic view of, of what metals mean to people, what metals mean in our everyday lives, you gotta, you gotta start from the beginning, right? You gotta start from getting them out of the earth and turning them into the metals that we interact with every day. And I have to say, actually, there's a good amount of research in my group that has come out of uh, what I learned from preparing lectures for the class. Um, learned about things like, you know, how to find the right types of deposits. Um, so in the geological history of, of the planet, um, what the right types of spots to even look for the rocks that you're trying to turn into the metal that you care about. How do we do that? You know, that's, that's totally non-trivial. Um, and for some metals, it's actually unbelievably non-trivial to the extent that actually people are currently still actively working on trying to figure it out. <laughs> Um, we got a, a speaker from Cobalt Metals uh, that is actually actively working on using machine learning to figure out how to find cobalt in the planet's surface because that's one of the minerals that it turns out is really, really hard to find from the top because it forms really, really deep beneath the surface with no trace at the surface to be able to go down and know that it's there. So you kind of just have to get lucky. And there's a lot of planets to get lucky in, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would say that that that, that stuff probably was, was the most surprising to me that, that I uh, have really ended up using a lot of that, the stuff that I learned from teaching the class in my own research. <laughs> so it sounds like there's a lot of hands-on stuff um, in the class. Can you talk a little bit about the structure of the class? like? the day-to-day -day life of being a professor and then also, I guess, being a student in that class? So I'm gonna answer this from the perspective of the students and then we can circle back on the professor life if you, if you would like to after. Sure. <laughs> um, so, so what I was always aiming for for the students is to have Monday be the orientation lecture. Um, so Monday we get into the nuts and bolts of what we're actually talking about in this field. By the way, it's a 10 week class. So every week we did a totally different field that metals are really important to but in a totally different way, because of course it's 10 totally different fields. Um, and so Monday was the orientation lecture. Here is this field and here's what it is and here's where metals appear in this field and are important. Then Wednesday, we would either have a guest lecturer that would come in and speak about their own career in that field and how metals come into play for that, or we would have a lab class where basically you go around and you do things, uh, do experiments that are kind of the model experiment for that particular piece of the class. Um, so for example, uh, we had a coins lab where we, um, we partnered with the uh, archives at Stanford and um, we, 
we used modern characterization tools like x-ray diffraction, like the scattering that I mentioned to you from the microscope, but not in microscope mode, just in scattering mode, um, to study the composition of coins from the Byzantine Empire that were just found out of the ground. They called them junk coins because they had no way of tracing where the coins came from, what the history of the coin was, and to all intents and purposes, you actually couldn't even see anything on the coins. It just looked like a black glob. Then you put them under the microscope and we discovered, actually, sorry, not microscope, the, the diffractometer. And we discover actually, this is pure gold. <laughs> um, so we had, we actually had one coin that was really interesting because uh, the coin ended up showing us that it was um, mostly copper, but also quartz, like silicon-based quartz, which if you, think a little bit more, you know, the way that ancient coins were made was through um, dyes. So it's it basically you put a piece of metal between two anvils and then you yeah. strike them together. And when you do that, then it compresses the, the little piece of metal into a flat disc and it imparts whatever picture you wanted to be present there. Well, uh, there's no piece of that that should ever involve silicon glass, right? But if you think a little deeper, where where might you find silicon glass in the lifetime of a coin? If it's buried somewhere? Yes, if it's buried somewhere with sand. <laughs> because sand is actually silica particles. Mm -hmm. And um, that it's not just that this is a copper coin, but this is a copper coin that came from a place likely that had a lot of sand in the soil because it got buried under that sand and some of it stuck to the coin. So we were actually all blown away that we got that much information out of just putting, you know, an ancient, totally indiscernible coin into the diffractometer. But it was, you know, a, a surprising but quite helpful result. <laughs> From my perspective, it was a lot of fun. It was every week a new adventure. <laughs> and uh, it was getting to um, kind of find the right way to convey the information to the students of, you know, is, is this the unit where the point that we want to make is that we want to show people concretely what we're doing? Or is this a week where we want people to see what a career looks like in this area? And, you know, aerospace was a good example. Like, what are we going to do? You know, we don't have a jet lab on campus. Well, we might. I don't know of it yet. <laughs> but um, it, it's going to be hard to make a spacecraft. But, you know, there are a lot of companies that do this type of thing. And it is actually an industry that is currently shifting, specifically space, um, that is currently in the process of shifting from a NASA thing that is done only by government to a uh, commercial thing that actually you could get an industry job in. And um, so it's helpful to kind of see what that looks like. <laughs> and that, that was kind of the choice I made there. There were other weeks that I made choice, the choice in a different place. Um, and we'll see what I do next time I teach the class. <laughs> so do you have a like a favorite special moment or interaction with your students or maybe even one specific student? I would say that the interactions with the students were all great. Um, it was a small class, so I got a chance to really get to know my students. And um, as a result, I, I could give them a little bit more directed help in kind of guiding their understanding of of where the career was and um 
I actually, you know, I, I originally was thinking, you know, I'll have it be a choose your own adventure and all of that. And towards the end, I realized that actually um, a little bit more of a guided adventure is helpful because, you know, you get an idea into your head, but it's, a, it's helpful to have, you know, a baseline, someone to at least hear the idea, make sure that what you're thinking about is what you think it is, right? And so at the end of the course, then we had um, mandatory 30-minute meetings with Leora just to, you know, chat totally, you know, no objective, just to chat about kind of what you're thinking for career, where you're going, what you've learned, and kind of anything I can do to help. And uh, I thought that was great um, and, and kind of a great opportunity for the students to kind of start hearing a little bit of feedback onto what they were thinking towards kind of how to get started because that can be the most intimidating thing in starting out your career is figuring out how to get to square one. <laughs> Once you get to square one, all of the squares kind of, you have experience, you have things to show for yourself, but getting to job one is, is intimidating. And so, Finding ways of making that easier is helpful. <laughs> yeah, I think this would be something I'm certainly interested in taking if I got there. Um, I also saw that you recently received a grant um, from the Stanford Sustainability Accelerator Program for carbon zero steelmaking. Can you talk a little bit about your work and some goals for that? Sure, yeah. So um, in that particular grant, what we're looking at, so Stanford has this new direction for sustainability. They, we just opened the School for Sustainability, or I think we are in the process of just opening it. So it's maybe maybe in a few months it will start operations. And um, well, it's organizing. And uh, so the first round of kind of projects to start off our university culture in this direction um, is what that sustainability accelerator grant program was looking at. And uh, so my group has an active line of research in the fundamental science that underlies how we can, uh, how we can use hydrogen to decarbonize this, uh, you know, millennia old technology of, you know, taking iron ores and making that into steel. And we're really good at it, but it is currently 8% of global CO2 emissions annually. And that is a industry that is rising exponentially. So it's a really hard to decarbonize industry because today the way that is done is by putting coal with iron ore into a furnace and just cooking it at really high temperatures, 2000 degrees for a day or two as it kind of descends through these 60 to 100 meter tall furnaces mm -hmm. until it eventually or reduces from the oxide into the iron zero that you then turn into coal. Sorry, no, turn into steel. <laughs> um, but that relatively dirty way of doing this, um, while it works really well, is never going to be sustainable in the way that we need for you know a, a fully sustainable carbon zero economy. So there are approaches to uh, finding ways of doing what are what's called carbon capture. You're probably familiar with that, where effectively you say, let's just take that CO2 and find either a way to trap it or to reuse it. Um, but in the long term, what we really need is a better way of making iron 
that doesn't require this, you know, really intricate system of trying to get rid of every little ounce of waste. So now if we fast forward a little bit, the challenge in this is that hydrogen makes the reaction with, with uh, the iron ore reduction way more complicated. So it happens, at, or it happens at a lower temperature and it's endothermic, meaning that it takes in heat, it sucks in heat from the environment and therefore lowers its own temperature as it goes. So if you need less temperature, that's great. But the fact that you need to keep pumping temperature and energy into your system as it's reacting, that makes it highly inefficient. And it also introduces now opportunities for a really heterogeneous environment, right? where you have your material reacting and as it reacts, it locally cools the temperature, slowing down the reaction. So you're trying to pour more heat in. And as you're trying to do that, then the reaction goes further and cools it back down again. And so you end up with, instead of hot spots where things are starting to go, cool spots where things, you know, you've, you've done a great job and therefore have no temperature left to do anything more with. Um, you know, there are a lot of people working on this problem. But it's a problem that there are many solutions to, all of which kind of work. And there isn't really one golden nugget like the blast furnace technology that is currently 85% of steel making. Um, because each one of these types of reactors to get it to work properly requires a much smaller reactor. And so there are many, many of these reactors out there and actually many different types, but coming to a consensus on how to scale this to the gigaton scale that is steel in this, on this planet today, the amount of steel we use per year is 1.85 gigatons. So we use more than four times as much steel as we have people on this planet every year. So just to put that in context, right? Like an industry of that scale, to get things scaled up that much, requires that we think about things in more of a consolidated way where we're not thinking just about the fundamental science, but we're also thinking about how the science manifests in scale at the very biggest scale possible in industry. It's a hard problem, <laughs> um, but we don't have millennia to solve it this time. So uh, we, we, you know, at most we have a hundred years. So um, this is kind of a problem that my group has been working hard at, and uh, we've been looking at this from the fundamental science picture and have been able to start showing that the reaction, the chemistry of the system is intrinsically linked to the mass transport. So the ability to get those oxygen atoms in the oxides out of the ore so that you can, you know, siphon them out so you can keep your iron as you're forming it. Um, that they're intrinsically very linked in ways that are really hard to model without having you know, a dedicated model that can treat that explicitly. But of course, showing that is very different from showing how that manifests in a gigaton scale reactor, right? And so that's what our new grant is working on is exploring ways of connecting the dots um, and finding the right type of approach to integrate the science into the design of those reactors so that we can actually have an impact on a time scale that will matter for climate change. I have a speed round 
of flash questions if you want to okay. just for fun it's like non-sciencey at all <laughs> but just for fun just to get to know you a little bit better um if you're interested sure i'll do my best <laughs> okay um first thing is your favorite color green is that your favorite color to wear too or just in general favorite color to wear is red <laughs> what is your favorite drink favorite drink well tea is on the brain right now hot tea or cold tea <laughs> uh hmm we'll go with hot tea hmm what is your favorite food favorite food I'm gonna go with chocolate <laughs> just because my favorite food is chocolate for engineering reasons hmm what's your favorite weekend activity or like any weekend hobby? activity probably taking walks with the family do you have any pets I do not. Me neither. <laughs> um, and do you have any hidden talents? Hidden talents. Um, in graduate school, I started getting really excited about wheel thrown ceramics. So I also, when I can find a studio for it, uh, I do wheel thrown ceramics where you basically have clay on a, on a spinning wheel and you create these cool shapes and, uh, art it's very nice learning about you i have just one more question um what do you want listeners to take away from this conversation that science is what you make of it and if you want to have a career that allows you to have a different to make a difference um in society and uh you know climate change and things like that um it's a really great opportunity to be the change that you want in society um, and to get a chance to really lead that, whether that is through, you know, through being the engineer that builds the machine that makes it happen, or being the scientist that develops the, you know, the approach and technology and, and uh, fundamentals that enable that technology, or being the person on Capitol Hill that convinces Congress to, you know, make a decision that that will finally, you know, fund and implement these types of really important changes um science is a big place and there's there's room for everyone <laughs> that's a great message thank you so much for your time absolutely and thank you so much for the great interview